think to yourself, do you know what's happening in your local community? The team at WUFT News works every day to bring you the most important and illuminating stories happening in North Central Florida that you need to know. But with so much happening across our nation, it's easy to lose track of what's happening right outside your front door. That's why we bring you the Rewind from WUFT News. I'm Sarah Mandile, a producer at WUFT News, and every week my colleagues and I showcase the best stories from our newsroom from the past week. For the next half hour, we'll be talking to the reporters themselves to get to the root of the story and learn just what they're hearing and seeing in our community. Our first story comes from Gainesville, where RTS bus routes are taking detours due to construction on the University of Florida campus. This is causing confusion among bus riders. Producer Kristen Moorhead spoke to WUFT reporter Sarah Lindsay about how this issue is highlighting disparities within the community. Sarah begins by summarizing how the construction has affected bus routes. The detours on campus are due to the construction on Museum Road and in a couple other places, but they are huge. They're part of a huge construction project that is going to take at least two years on campus, but the detours affect people obviously who aren't on campus as well because half of the routes are different now and so people who rely on them um, to get to work or for their kids to get to school or anything like that are unable to take their usual routes but there was a lot of confusion because people who maybe hadn't seen the construction yet were still relying on the same routes and things like that. The RTS system is switching to a new app right? Can you tell me more about that? RTS is promoting the launch of a new app uh, to streamline navigation and clarify all the new detours. And basically it is a live feed with live updates. So let's say there's an accident and they need to change one of their routes. You'll get live updates on, hey, your bus route's a little bit different today. And it'll show you exactly where the bus is. Um, I did download it for the story to check it out and uh, it seems pretty cool. It has, like I said, live updates, but it'll specifically update you on each bus on the route so there's a few buses that run each route and that'll tell you like where they are how long it's going to take for them to get to you and things like that and if there's any issues you can just know a little bit more quickly but I think a lot of the students that I spoke to on campus and even a few community members at different bus stops didn't know about the app. Is Gainesville doing anything to like advertise the new app or spread the word especially to these communities off campus? There are a lot of signs at the transfer stations, like at the, I know there's a couple at the Butler Plaza transfer station, and they have big sort of like standalone signs there for that. But I definitely think that based on the people I spoke to for the story, there, it is a little lacking and just a lot of people haven't heard about it. It's on social media and a couple other places, but I think it's been difficult for the community because, well, one, a lot of people who ride the buses don't even use an app. They just kind of know their route and they go with that. So that's been hard, and I know a lot of the bus drivers that I spoke to were basically curating routes for people <laughs> and helping them out through the whole transition, especially since the app wasn't live the first week of the semester. That caused a lot of difficulty for people. So you were mentioning that the RTS bus route system isn't just used by UF students, but also by members of the community, specifically elderly people and people in lower income communities who might not have reliable access to transportation. How are these detours affecting those communities? I definitely know that a lot of people who work, yeah, work near the campus are a little frustrated with it uh, just because 
you know, they don't even go to UF. And so when the entire system is basically based around how things are going at UF, that can be a little frustrating for community members. I think it's really common for us to assume that Gainesville is UF and UF is Gainesville, but that's not the case. I mean, as much as a lot of us bleed orange and blue and all that, <laughs> there are a lot of people who just are a part of the community and they sometimes feel overlooked. I spoke with a lot of non-traditional students that felt a little overlooked in the situation at people who live off campus, but then also just community members who are like, hey, I use this to get my kids to school. I spoke with one woman who's not quoted in the article, but I just spoke with a lot of people at bus stops and she said that her kid has to take three buses instead of one now to get where they need to for school. So it's just, um, it affects everybody, not just people at UF. Going more into your reporting process, what was the reporting process for this story like? Well, I had the idea for the story because it happened to me. <laughs> the girl that I quoted in the beginning of the article, Jordan Nicole Sandberg, I actually was on the bus when she, we both had the same situation where we thought we were on the right bus and we weren't. So I asked if I could write about it, but I rode a lot of buses that I didn't even care where they were going. I just wanted to talk to community members and get a really big sample size. So I spent a lot of time just hopping on and off buses that <laughs> I didn't need to be on. Um, I went to transfer stations and talked to community members. Obviously I was on campus quite a bit and I hung out by the closed bus stops and the ones that were running and talked to students, but I really didn't want it to be all student focused because I think the community is so much more than that. Some parts of Gainesville have more limited access to this RTS system, specifically in lower income communities in Gainesville. Um, can you talk more about some of the disparities? I know you reported on them a little bit at the end of your story, but can you talk more a little bit about some of the disparities that some communities are facing? Well, while I can't speak for all community members that are on like the outlying areas, when I spoke to Sarai Cabrera from DSS, she was speaking on how there's a lot of community members who couldn't walk to a bus stop from where they are. And RTS does have a program where they'll pick people up in a van and take them to a bus stop, which she mentions in the article. But the issue with that is, you know, you're getting up three hours before your appointment is what, what the point she was making is like, it's not as simple as, oh, hey, well, they'll take you to the bus stop. And it's like, yeah, well, that adds an hour to my commute that was already an hour plus because I take the bus and things like that. I spoke to a community member also. He is recently displaced and kind of staying with people on and off in uh, Rufus Perry. And he was saying that, you know, it's really complicated. He takes the bus everywhere, but the buses don't run the same every day. They don't reach every place he needs to get to. So really, if you're someone who relies on the buses and you live in these outlying areas, it's more of like, I take the bus and supplement with other forms of transportation, which can be really hard on community members. And maybe people can afford the bus, but maybe they can't afford to take all that time off of work to get to work. And I, when I spoke to DSS, they were talking about how it's really hard on low-income communities in Gainesville because obviously buses run more where there are more people and there's more money. We made a blotter map of low-income communities and where the buses run typically, you can see the disparities like in a very visual way. Why is reporting on a story like this important? I think reporting on a story like this is really important because you're hearing from people you wouldn't normally hear from. And I think it would have been so easy to just go to UF and talk to people who are like, I can't get to class. But that's not our entire community, and I think we need reminders of that all around because it's so easy to 
be engrossed on campus or be someone who works at Shands and deals with people on campus or something like that, but you really don't get to hear from these outlying community members and people who just don't typically have that voice and it just affects so many more people than you realize. And that's why I spoke to a non-traditional student, um, a more traditional student, and multiple community members and multiple bus drivers that even are under the umbrella of like, hey, we're, where are these people to? This is our community. You know, I'm not outside of this issue because it affects me as well. I know you spoke on this a little bit, but is there anything that you found in the reporting process that you couldn't manage to fit in the final product that you still thought was important? I spoke with a lot of people that I couldn't fit in there just because it was so much. And I tried to cover most of these demographics, but I did honestly speak with a lot of elderly people at bus stops and a lot of people at bus stops who didn't have time to be interviewed because they were on their way to work and they had to figure out their routes and catch more than, um, you know, more than one bus at a time or they were at a transfer station. I saw, I spent a lot of time at bus stops sitting and talking with people who were in their uniforms and who had just had a really long day and had to take the bus to go pick up their kid or had to take the bus to go get groceries before they took the bus to get home. And so I think we have such a wide variety of commuters and such a wide variety of people that it affects. So I think it would be impossible to fit all of those voices in there um, but I did get to experience a lot more of the community and I'm not from Gainesville. So getting to feel that sense of this is what the city is was really powerful, I think. That was Kristen Moorhead speaking with WUFT reporter Sarah Lindsay about RTS bus route detours. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Sue Wagner, host of Tell Me About It on WUFT. I speak to leaders, artists, philanthropists, and innovators to learn why and how they do what they do. That's Tell Me About It, Sunday mornings at 7 a.m. right here on WUFT. Welcome back to The Rewind from WUFT News. Our next story takes a look at the Alachua County Fire Department, where fire rescue members are feeling burnt out due to staffing shortages and longer hours enhanced by the COVID-19 pandemic. Recent action by the Alachua County Commission pledges to help them get back on their feet. Producer Ariana Asparu spoke with WUFT reporter Avery Lotz about what this means for the department. So Avery. Your story centers on the issues the Alachua County Fire Department is facing when it comes to being overworked and understaffed. Can you give me an overview of what's been going on? They are very overworked at the moment with the uh, increases in call load and workload that they're experiencing at a global pandemic on top of that. And it's what Chief Diaz explained as a perfect storm. They are really just um, experiencing levels of calls that they've never had before, but this has really been a consistent trend over the last five, six years or so um, that call loads have increased, workload has increased, and therefore hours of mandatory overtime have increased. So when you think of, you know, a normal 40-hour work week or so, some of these people are at the station for 48 hours at a time or longer, you know, just trying to keep our community safe. So it's really an interesting, interesting dynamic to think about. 
In your story, you interview different members of the fire station on their current circumstances. So what are some of the things you heard from them? Yes. So um, there were probably two that really stood out to me. One just was talking to uh, Rebecca, who is a rescue lieutenant who works at Station 30. Um, She is a mom, so she was talking about balancing being a mother of an almost three-year-old little boy and being a rescue lieutenant at the same time. And then uh, James Clifford, who is the former president of the Alachua County Fire Union and a current district chief, he told me some really, really compelling stories. In his letter that he wrote that kind of inspired me to write this piece, he explained that there was a, I believe, rescue lieutenant that he had worked with in the past who basically was unfortunately given the choice between being there for his young son's surgery or basically quitting his job because he was assigned mandatory overtime while his little boy was going through a life-altering surgery. So just having to make that decision seems impossible for him. That's an impossible decision to make. And Clifford actually said that because of, you know, having to watch people experience things like this repeatedly, this was an ongoing trend, this wasn't an isolated incident, that he actually stepped down from a management position where he was overseeing more employees and working on employee scheduling. And he kind of accepted a demotion um, back to district chief, a position he held before, but he just said it was so detrimental to his mental health. Yeah. Wow. You mentioned how you discovered this story through a letter. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? So um, I read the letter, I believe it was in the Alachua Chronicle where I first saw it. And then I also saw it on Facebook, and Clifford said that there was just this frustration in him that had been building for years. And um, I think the really interesting piece of data was that in the first eight months of 2021, from uh, January to August, there were 395 more instances of mandatory overtime than in all of 2015. And since then, that number has just continued to skyrocket over the last month or so. So you visited the fire station in person during your reporting. What was that like? It was so not, I guess, what I was expecting when I walked into the fire station. I had never been in a fire station before. Um, And, of course, there's the ambulances outside and everything. And then when I went in, I kind of described it a little bit in the piece. There was an Xbox setup and some Xbox controllers. And Rebecca and her partner were eating some lunch. She was eating a salad. He was making some mac and cheese over in the kitchen. She kind of gave me a little tour of the whole station, showed me the weight room where they work out and the little kind of dorm area where they sleep and the backyard and everything. It was really interesting to see how they really do operate like a family in there. I think they all rely on one another so much for support and for camaraderie. And you feel that they're tired. You feel that they've been through a lot, that they're working hard. But at the same time, you see the way they kind of riff off of each other and seem to really bring each other up. According to your article, these issues have been amplified by the pandemic. Can you kind of run me through how that happened? Yeah. So while this is kind of an ongoing issue, we've seen the trend in mandatory overtime increasing as there's been a lot of staffing issues and such. COVID added this new layer. So as the call load is all has been increasing for a long time, now the call time is also increasing. So you have these people that you can only have a certain amount of people who go on a call when there's a patient who is, you know, who could potentially have COVID. And I believe it was, as Chief Thea said to me, right now, we kind of assume everybody has COVID. So we're kind of always going kind of a little short-staffed into these uh, rescue missions. Once you have the patient, you're in the back of the ambulance with them, you take them to the hospital. 
hospital wait times then are are the new barrier. So that you have to wait and wait and wait until there's an available bed and you're in the back of a an, a tiny ambulance, you know, with with someone who's COVID positive and you're wondering, oh no, I'm going to have to go home to my family. Have I contracted COVID? Am I going to be able to clean this ambulance to the best of my ability when they're gone? How long am I going to be sitting here in the first place? So there's all those added worries. The daily workload has become so much worse because of the added time with understaffed crews. So I think the main issue, aside from the obvious, you know, quarantines and obvious obvious worries about COVID that COVID has presented, is increased call times and increased call votes. In your story, you report that the Alachua County Commission recently voted on a three-part motion to help alleviate some of the stress. Can you tell me what that plan kind of entails? So that was a unanimous agreement to pass that motion. So first, they're going to offer a $10,000 premium hiring bonus for new rescue lieutenant hires because that is the position that is really understaffed right now that's experiencing some of the worst conditions. They're also going to introduce 12 new jobs to the budget. Half of those jobs will be for new rescue lieutenants, so six of those. And then lastly, they're going to open negotiations with the fire rescue professionals of Alachua County, the union, to try to offer that same bonus for um, existing rescue lieutenants for existing employees. But I think uh, Clifford especially also voiced concern that, you know, is this enough? This is actually smaller than other budget plans we've introduced in the past. Is this same passion, this same energy going to go into fixing these conditions when COVID is no longer an issue? Or, you know, are we just going to blame this on COVID? Or are we going to see that there are deep-rooted issues that have been spiraling for years before? So his concern is, I think we need to do more, even though he is hopeful that this could really make a difference. I think it kind of comes down to just working with the foundations and maybe rebuilding those foundations a little bit, rebuilding them a little bit stronger. And then on top of this, an initiative like this could be really powerful if they got to the root of the issue. Mm -hmm. Until these changes are implemented, these firefighters still have to report for work as much as they have been and keep reporting for their kid, like in the case of Rebecca and their families and things like that. So what did they say about how they're feeling until then? So when I asked Rebecca, what is the one thing you want the public to know about what you do every day? Is there any message you want the people you serve to know? She said, no matter what, no matter how many hours I've worked, no matter how tired I am, no matter how much I just want to go home and sleep and give my little boy a hug, I am going to come as fast as I can and I'm going to do whatever I can in my power to help you because that is her job. That's her number one goal. Even though these issues are having such a deep impact on the employees, their number one priority still will always be the people in the community that they're serving. That was Ariana Asperu speaking with WUFT reporter Avery Lotz about Alachua County Fire Rescue and what the Alachua County Commission is doing to help them get back on their feet. Sit tight, we'll be right back. Tell Me About It is about the very people who touch the heart of North Central Florida. I'm your host, Sue Wagner, and each week we talk to those who work to elevate the quality of life in our area. That's Tell Me About It, Sunday mornings at 7 a.m. here on WUFT. You're listening to The Rewind from WUFT News. Finally, we bring you a story from Crystal River. 
Residents in Crystal River are frustrated with ongoing flooding in their area, which is so severe in some neighborhoods that residents have difficulty getting to and from their homes. Producer Melissa Fado spoke with WUFT reporter Amy Gallo, who begins by describing the community of Crystal River. Yeah, so Crystal River City is a coastal community. It's very nature-oriented, so anywhere, I mean, anywhere and everywhere, there's a river connecting to the Homosassa River. Uh, the houses are all built along the river or, like, within the woods. Um, from what my source, Gary Bartell, told me, it's a very like tight-knit community and that's kind of one of the reasons why they didn't understand why they're enlarging the road because um, they don't see a need for it they feel it's a very small community so maybe we should start with the construction of u.s highway 19 so when did it start and when did it stop it's two u.s 19 projects so there's one that's um widening the stretch of the road from west green acres to south jump court and the other one is from jump court to fort island trail So that first project started in 2016 and the other one in 2018. And then on July 28th, construction stopped because DAB constructors, um, they left the project. And so since then, the construction has been, the project's been halted. Completely. There's nothing going on there. FDOT is sending um, people to check on, you know, the flooding and the way things, with traffic and stuff like that, they want to keep it safe. This starts kind of as a story about this construction project that stopped, you thought maybe what you'd hear about was traffic problems, but what you end up hearing about is flooding problems. So maybe tell me about that, and then we'll talk about the river issue a little in a minute. Yeah, okay, so um, yeah, I did. I thought it would be traffic problems. I thought that would be, I don't know, just a, a story that would be impactful for their community, but not necessarily everywhere else. Um, and then I started getting all these messages from people and they're like, I, you know, I'm having trouble to safely getting to work or safely getting into my neighborhood. And, um, so I went there, I I needed to see the flooding. I mean, I was hearing it was like up to 12 inches of flooding. I was like, that's insane. I've never experienced that. People were telling me they can't get their cars through unless it's a truck and that the truck's tires need to be, you know, like how truck tires can be lifted. So I was, I thought that was crazy. And then I was in a Nissan Titan, which is pretty, a pretty big truck. Like it's pretty high up and we were struggling to get through. We got to like halfway through the stretch of the road um, and I could not drive past it. And um, you mentioned FDOT earlier. What has been their response to this? You said you spoke to a spokesperson of theirs. Do they acknowledge that... Um, the construction or the lack of construction on the highway is tied to this flooding or what do they say? So my story focused on flooding on Mayo Drive and um, Kristen Carson, she's a spokesperson for FDOT, she said that me asking about the flooding was the first time it had been brought to her attention and so FDOT then sent out um, I guess a team to do a field review and um, she said that the flooded area on Mayo Drive is not being affected by US-19. So that, those were her words. She said that the area is flooding, the area that's flooding is well outside the right of way and that the properties located immediately adjacent to the right of way um, on US-19 are significantly higher than the proposed construction. So that was her statement on it. So um, you also write about an issue with the Halls River, which some residents tie to be connected to this 
highway construction issue. You spoke to a gentleman by the name of Gary Bartell Jr., and he's the uh, head of stand-up for The Outstanding. Um, and what did he tell you about how this connects to the pollution in the Halls River? He was very helpful with me trying to get myself oriented on what was going on there. Um, he and that group, they all figured out that the retention ponds that were built, they all lead directly into the Halls River. So I was able to go, I visited each retention pond. Um, I saw some of the culvert pipes that, you know, connect into the, the river. So I got to see a lot of it firsthand and he, you know, he explains it really well. All of these points are connected to one place. Right behind us is Pond 4. This is a uh, DOT drainage retention pond. And then in the middle of this black silt uh, fence barrier here is a vortex drain. So what happens is when this pond fills up, this beautiful looking water uh, will drain through the vortex, shoot underneath of the road, and then connect into a drainage basin, which ultimately goes down, or I'm sorry, up US 19 north and then goes back under the road directly into the Halls River. So Gary was saying he doesn't allow his child to go in the water anymore, and he used to swim there all the time when he was a kid. I think this river is really important to the community, and for a lot of them it was a place to, you know, go and swim and do whatever you want to do, you know, on a river. And now it's, it's just, it's this brown color, and they don't feel comfortable. Has Bartell gotten any response from any governing body or agency on um, his claims of he the has. pollution. So he sent me, um, it's from the District 7 Secretary, David Gwynn for FDOT, and he uh, sent an email to Gary Bartell. And what, what did that response say? Yeah, it said, um, well, he said, we are ultimately responsible for the performance of the system and we are working hard to improve the erosion control measures and will continue to do so. And um, that was... He said that after explaining that there had been a reported 60 inches of rain in the last month alone in that area. And he said that that, that amount of rain combined with the fact that there's nobody working on US-19 was obviously an issue. So, you know, what's next both for the flooding and for the Halls River? You say in your reporting that a local water management district is getting involved. Yes, the Southwest Florida Water Management District. So they've been involved I it's for a couple of years now. I don't remember exactly when they began, but they're they're sort of working together with FDOT and then so they are they have a plan. It's called the swim plan and it's basically they're working to improve the water quality in the Homosassa River system. And um as for what's next, I mean, they'll continue doing that. Um, Gary did mention that they're thinking of, that FDOT is talking about bringing a company in to desalt the canals. And he thinks that's, you know, it's a great thing to do. It really shows that they are, they care about this issue. But he thinks that something else should just, you know, that the water should just stop going into the river. Um, that way, these drastic measures don't have to be taken. That's how I closed out my story. Um, and then as for maybe future reporting on this, I got a call from someone here to the station and she told me that she's experiencing flooding not on Mayo Drive, but on the road, like right behind it. And that there's a, basically there's a whole other flooding issue over there. So that's something I might be looking into. Um, so yeah, there's definitely a lot going on in this community.
That was Melissa Fato speaking with WUFT reporter Amy Gallo about ongoing flooding in Crystal River. Make sure to join us next Sunday, where we'll be showcasing the best stories coming out of WUFT News. The Rewind from WUFT News is produced by Melissa Fado, Sarah Mandile, Ariana Asperu, and Kristen Moorhead. Our executive producer is Sky LeBron. WUFT News is operated out of the College of Journalism and Communications at the University of Florida. I'm Sarah Mandile. Thanks for listening.